If you will turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4 today, we're continuing our sermon series on the book of James. This is part 7 of an 11-week series, and uh, last Sunday we looked at uh, the last part of James chapter 3. We talked about two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God versus the wisdom of the world, and today we're continuing in James chapter 4. There's a group of academics and historians that have compiled uh, some startling information, or at least surprising information. I think several of you will find it to be surprising. I did. Uh, they, they have discovered that since 3600 BC, the world has only known a combined 292 years of peace, where there hasn't been war in some place in the world. During this period of time, since 3600 BC, there have been 14,351 wars, whether large or small. In those wars, 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of the property that has been destroyed as a result of those wars would be equivalent to a golden belt that wraps all the way around the world. And this golden belt would be 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. Imagine that. Since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 arms races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. The remainder have ended in the economic collapse of those countries involved. Today, in 2019, Global military expenditures around the world are running well over $1 million spent per minute. Every single minute. $1 million. One in five scientists worldwide is engaged in military work exclusively. We're a world that's nearly at constant war. But today I want to talk to you not about military conflict in our world, but about another kind of conflict that's also seemingly constant. I want to talk about the battles between us and each other, the battles within us and the battles between us and God. The title of this message today is World War Me. <laughs> World War Me. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. It says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or don't you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell within us, but he gives us more grace. I'm so thankful for that sentence. Amen. In the midst of it all, he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping. He's saying, once again, we're not being a doer, just a hearer. But you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Each and every one of us are in a war. Whether we realize it or not, whether we want to be in a war or not, whether we like the fact that we're in a war or not, some of us are in more than one war. We all have at least three enemies, probably more, but at least three. The first of those is the devil. We like to blame him for a lot of stuff. The Bible describes him as a lion roaring, seeking whom he can devour. The other enemy that we have is the world, and this is not of the exaggerated sense that the entire world is against me. Everyone's my enemy. No one, no one loves me. It's not it. It's in the, in the, in the fact that there's a, a, a godly way in which to live our lives and a worldly way in which to live our lives and the, uh, the allure of the world is constantly trying to pull us away from the path that God would have for us. It's, it's an enemy that we have. The allure of the world, the allure of the devil. And the, the third one is ourselves. Often, we are our own worst enemy. The greatest struggle is often the one within us. And that's what James is starting off this chapter talking about is the, the, the quarrels and the fights, maybe they're with each other, maybe they're between us and God, but the root comes from the passions and the desires and the evil things that dwell within us. There's three things I want to talk to you about today. The first of those is the declaration of war. How do our problems originate? James asked the question at the beginning of chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's not holding back. He just comes right out and says, why do you guys argue so much? Why do you have so many problems? What's going on? James doesn't hold back. There's not many of us, if any of us, that can truthfully say that our lives are conflict-free. Is anyone out there just living the Akuna Matata life? No problems, no worries, stress-free. Not many of us. If you, if you are, share your, your, your uh, ability to acquire that life. Most of us have conflicts. Some of those conflicts are just a natural part of life. They're not the result of anything that we've done. It's just the result of the fact that we're alive. But there's other kind of conflicts that we have as well. Why? Well, we blame them on our crazy sister. We blame them on our overbearing mother-in-law. We blame them on our nosy co-workers or whatever it may be. They originate with the desires that battle within us, though. And it's not to say that there aren't some conflicts that are legitimate. We, we said that. But James here is talking about the conflicts that are the result of our own internal issues. It's not always your crazy sister. It's not always your loony mother-in-law. Sometimes it's you. If you'll remember in chapter 1 when we started this whole series, James shared a little bit of this idea in verse 14 when he said, Each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. We like to blame a lot of other people for our problems. We like to say that the devil made me do it. And oftentimes the devil doesn't have to do anything. He sees what we do to ourselves and he's just able to sit back and laugh mm -hmm. because we've done it to ourselves. 
We've made his job easy. James is saying here, stop blaming other people. Stop blaming it on the devil. Take some responsibility for the thoughts and the passions and the desires that live within you. See, there's really two different ways that our lives develop. For a lot of people, for some people, I don't know if it's a lot of people, but there's some people who by the grace of God are aware of the goodness of God in their lives. They wake up and they're aware of the fact that they're alive and that they're healthy and that they're able to do things. Maybe they have a little bit of money in their pockets and so they're able to go and eat. And it's not because they are owed health or money or a good marriage or any of the blessings that they have. Those people realize they don't really deserve anything, that these are gifts from a loving father. And these people grow in gratitude and their eyes are on the goodness of God and they look out for the generosity of God in their lives. And there's a, there's a cycle that develops in these kinds of people's lives where they're on the lookout for the grace and the generosity and the blessings of God in their lives. And because they're looking for it, they're able to spot it. And when they spot the generosity of God and the grace and the blessings that he gives them, it causes joy to result in their life. And the joy that results because of the blessings of God causes them to look for more blessings of God and to try to spot the grace of God and the goodness of God in their lives. And it's a cycle that continues. And these are the result of these people as joyful people. And then there's also other people that see everything as something that they're entitled to. No matter what they have and what they've been blessed with, there's something more that they deserve to have. So they don't grow in gratitude, but they grow in contempt. They don't rejoice when others are blessed. They're offended by that because they deserve to have that. And it causes a different kind of cycle to develop in their life, a cycle of negativity and a cycle that, they, that causes them to begin to look for things that they deserve to have but don't or things that they were entitled to receive and didn't. And when they spot something, it leads to grumbling and contempt and it goes on and on and on, a cycle of negativity in those people's lives. We come to a place where we say, if God won't give me what I deserve, then I'll take it myself. And that's what James is talking about when he says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives mm -hmm. that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. The reality is that none of us want God to give us what we deserve. If you really thank God for something today, thank him for his unfairness in that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Yes. Thank God for grace and mercy in our lives. We have to check and evaluate our hearts and our attitudes because what's going on inside of us is what's going to determine what comes out in our lives. We talked about this just a couple weeks ago when we talked about the power of our words. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, this is connected. James is showing how not only our words, but also our actions are shaped by World War Me. By the conflicts that are going on inside of us, the junk that's there, we've allowed these things to declare war on our behalf. And they've not only declared war on us, they've declared war on people around us. And if we're not careful, it'll declare war on God. Second thing I want to talk to you about is the key battles. How problems escalate. In war, there's maybe a decisive battle out of many battles that are fought. There's a major offensive or a decisive battle that can be a turning point 
out of which the war itself, the entire war, can be decided. For example, in the American Revolutionary War, the Battle of Yorktown is said to have directly led to the independence of the United States. There were many battles. There were several significant ones. But the Battle of Yorktown in particular was the turning point. It was the key battle in the war. In the Civil War, there was the Battle of Gettysburg where Hancock's forces held fast and the Union Army got the upper hand. It was a key, decisive battle. In World War II, there was the Battle of Midway in the Pacific and, and the Russians' defeat of the Germans at Stalingrad. These were important moments that shifted the entire war. Had those gone differently, maybe the outcome of the war goes differently. And James is talking about the quarrels and fights that we have with each other, but he goes on to talk about how this escalates even further, and there's a key turning point, a key place, that really is going to determine the outcome of the war, and that is whether we will stop the hostility and the conflict within us and with others around us, or whether we allow that to develop into a full-blown hostility between us and God. Here's how it happens. James says, first of all, we don't, we don't ask God. Remember, there's a parallel between a lot of James' teaching and the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you ask anything, it will be given to you. And James says here, you don't have because you don't ask God. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he says, when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Oftentimes, the things that we are wanting from God are not because we want the will of God, but we want selfishly for our own gain. It goes back to the passions that are warring within us, those passions and those desires, the ones that don't honor God. We're wanting to fulfill those, and we're blaming God for the fact that he hasn't given us things that will align with those passions that are warring inside of us instead of his passions that he's placed inside of us. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that our desires may not only be selfish, but they may be worldly, and they may be in direct opposition to the will of God. When we lack a gratitude for the grace and mercy of God and we allow entitlement and contempt to grow toward those around us, it will eventually grow towards God as well. So we eventually say, I don't trust God to be enough for me. I'm going to take my friendship away from God and I'm going to give it to those that are the most hostile toward him. James says, you adulterous people. It's interesting, he doesn't say idolatrous, he says adulterous. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? It causes you to be in hostility toward God. It causes you to become an enemy of God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We get confused by this friendship language because we think, aren't we supposed to love our enemies and show God's love in a friendly manner? And that's not at all what this passage is talking about. In fact, Oprah Winfrey, if you've heard her testimony of not Christianity... Uh, she cites this passage of scripture. She, she tells the story of how she was sitting in church and hearing a pastor preach James chapter 4. And she heard about how if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God and how je- God is a jealous God. And she determined at that moment that if she can't be friendly with people that don't believe in God, then she doesn't want any part of it. Well, Oprah, if you're watching our live stream today, as I'm sure you routinely do, I have good news. That's not at all what this passage of scripture means. See, friendship for us today often means a casual acquaintance. We claim to have a lot of really good friends, and in reality, we don't know anything about them because our our relationships are shallow. We know a lot of people about this much. And the internet and social media has allowed this to become even more of a reality today. We can feel connected to people 
in a way and know things about people that 10 years ago would have probably landed us in jail. What do you mean you know what I had for dinner? What do you mean you know that I'm out of town? How do you know who I'm dating before my mom knows? <laughs> Internet stalking is a crazy thing. Oh look, they're at Yellowstone today. Look how cute, now they're in a relationship. We know a lot about our friends, but we don't really know them at all. In fact, they would probably be freaked out if they knew how much we've learned about them, not from conversation, but from stalking them on the internet. That's what friendship means to us. We have a thousand Facebook friends, and so we must be pretty popular. Well, friendship in the first century when James was writing this letter was something very different. <laughs> The kind of friendship that James was talking about is something Jesus modeled. Jesus preached to multitudes, thousands of people, 5,000. There's different times where we see Jesus with the 500. We see him with the 144. Then there was the 70 that he sent out. We're very familiar with the 12, but these were not Jesus' friends. We would probably claim them as our friends. But when it all boiled down to that, there was three that he was really close with. Mm-hmm. Friendships are restricted because you can't go deep with everybody. Friendship in the first century meant, I'm going deep with you. I'm going to have no secrets from you. If you see inconsistencies in me, if you see something wavering in me, if you see me losing courage or selling out, then you engage me. You confront me for, for lovingly for the good of my own soul. I mean, we desperately need this in our lives today, but most people won't do it. Most people won't allow people that kind of access to themselves. They don't really want to go deep and allow people to speak the truth and love to them. So what James is saying in chapter 4 is that these people who have grown contemptuous to the Lord because of the passions and the desires that are out of control within them, they've decided to remove their friendship from God. That part of them that says, God, you shape me and you mold me. God, search me and know me. And if you see anything inside of me, would you, would you take away those things that don't belong? Those people have decided no longer am I going to give God that kind of access in my life, that kind of a relationship. Instead, they give that to the worldly enemies of God and say, okay, now you shape me. And you mold me because there's a treasure that I want that's better than what I'm getting from God. And James is calling them out. He says, you adulterous people. He's saying, you're promise breakers. Mm -hmm. You made a promise to God and you broke it. You never had any intention of keeping those promises. And if we're honest, we're all guilty of that. This idea is not exclusive to James. God says in Jeremiah 2, 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Mm -hmm. We've taken something valuable that only God can give and we've tried to, to replace it with cheap and artificial things in our lives because we're not getting what we want when we want it to fulfill and please the passions inside of us. So it's not that we have to hate people that are around us that are different. It's not about being some kind of exclusive church bubble or clique. That's not at all what James is talking about. Friendship with the world being an enemy of God is talking about this deep level of a relationship that influences your life in a powerful way. It's that the ways of God and the ways of the world are completely different. Mm -hmm. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world, remember as we was just talking about last week, just a few verses before, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world are complete opposites. 
You cannot serve both. You cannot live according to both. You cannot be deeply influenced by both. You will be faithful to one or the other, but not to both. Mm -hmm. It's an abandonment of God to allow your life to be completely influenced in a deep way by the things that are contrary to the wisdom of God. So in our lives, our unchecked passions and desires within us cause us to fight and quarrel with each other, but it doesn't stop there. It leads us to our, us turning our back on God's grace and provision in our lives to seek another way, to embrace the, the very things that are in direct opposition to the things of the Lord, to embrace worldliness instead of godliness, and this becomes a turning point in World War Me. The battle that will decide the outcome of it all. Are we going to continue to allow these passions and desires that are warring in, within us to lead us? Are they going to lead us in an adulterous way which leads to more hostility between us and God? Or are we going to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to him? Because that's the key to victory. That's the only way that the war is won. That's how problems evaporate. I love the story of the Sultan of Zanzibar in 1896. He was issued an ultimatum to surrender or to face the attack of the British fleet. And the Sultan chose to resist. He made the wrong choice because what happened next is on record as being the shortest war in history. The British forces bombarded Zanzibar, which is modern day Tanzania, for 38 minutes and the Sultan realized that he was badly mismatched and he surrendered after 38 minutes of war. It's kind of similar to what happens when we think we can survive in open hostility with God. But I want to tell you what's, what's crazy, what's even crazier than us thinking that we could somehow resist and live in opposition to God. We wouldn't even last 38 minutes. <laughs> But what's crazier than us thinking that is, is what's crazier than even thinking that, that we should choose the things that bring open hostility between us and God is God's response when we do. He doesn't bombard us for 38 minutes. You know what he does? It says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell within us, but he gives us more grace. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That's crazy that we would choose things that would bring us into open hostility with God, and he chooses to respond by giving us more grace. There's a lot of people that like to talk bad about James and how strict and harsh he is. One of the most beautiful pictures of grace that there is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. This should be one of your favorite verses in the Bible. God gives us more grace. Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That doesn't mean that we should go out and keep sinning because God's grace is big enough to cover it. And so who cares what we do? God's just going to continually give us an endless buffet of grace. That's not what it's about. But you should be excited that there is a God that sees and knows all about World War Me. And he knows all about our evil desires and passions inside of us. And he even sees how we so often choose friendship with the world over friendship with God, but he extends more and more grace to us. He wants to see the war inside you end. And how do wars end? Wars end through surrender. James says we must submit to God. So how do we submit to God? There's five ways that we can achieve surrender and end the war within us and receive everything that God has for us by submitting to him. The first way that James says we do it is to resist the devil. 
you can resist the devil, and the Bible says that he will flee. I believe that's a promise. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says there's no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He's full of grace, and he's faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You can resist the devil. God will provide a way out. He will flee from you. When we resist the devil, he will flee. The second thing that we have to do if we're going to submit to God is we have to draw near to God. And there's another promise attached that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. This is not only a good thing, it's another promise from the Lord. Grow in your relationship with the Lord. You have to spend time in prayer. You're never going to grow in a relationship with somebody without talking to them, and you're never going to grow in your relationship with the Lord without talking to Him. You've got to read your Bible. If, if you were in a relationship with someone and they wrote you a love letter and you didn't read it, I would question whether you really cared about that person or had any interest in a serious relationship with them. And God's written his word to us, and we go so often without reading it mm -hmm. until we hit rock bottom. I challenge you, if you're going to draw near to God and you want God to draw near to you, then grow in your relationship with him through prayer and through reading the Bible. And the other thing is the way that you can grow in your relationship is by not being isolated. Find somebody that you can go deeper than this with. Find somebody that's going to encourage you and speak life into you and demonstrate the lived out grace of God in their life and extend that same grace towards you. Guys, on Saturday, we've got a men's breakfast at Chuck Wagon at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's a great way to not be isolated and to do life together and allow some other people to come alongside of you and speak life to you. Maybe you, you find these relationships through a women's Bible study. Maybe it's through the youth group on Monday nights. However it is that you're going to find these relationships so that you can draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Maybe it's through going to a youth camp or a women's retreat. Whatever it is, find relationships. Find an environment where you're able to draw near to God and he can draw near to you. One day a week isn't good enough. I was sharing with our staff team earlier this week that God gave... The children of Israel manna every single day. It was enough for that day, but if they tried to store it up for the next day, it was no good. They had to go get fresh manna every day. In the same way, God wants to meet with you every single day. He wants to reveal himself to you every day. And you can try to come on Sunday and store up enough for a week and try to make it all week long on that, but it's going bad by the next day. You've got to spend time in God's presence. You've got to draw near to God consistently if you want God to draw near to you. The third way that we submit to God and that we surrender, James says, we wash, wash your hands and purify your hearts. This is kind of weird. What does this even mean? Well, it means a couple things to me, and there's a couple of really deep things that I think he's saying here. The first of those is that we have to get really serious about our sin. None of us would come and gather around a table and sit down to eat with mud all over our hands, because I guarantee you, if you sat down to eat, and your hands were covered in mud, it wouldn't be long before everybody at the table is just staring at your hands and hoping that you're not sticking one of those paws in the, in the biscuit bowl, right? You're not touching my biscuits with those things. Go wash your hands. It's obvious to everybody, especially in James' day where it would be a community sitting around eating a family-style meal together. Dirty hands are easily seen by others, but what's in our hearts is easily hidden. And so when James says to wash your hands and purify your hearts, he's talking about not only taking care of what other people can easily see, 
but taking care of the things that only God can see that are easily hidden from others. Mm -hmm. We've got to get serious about the sin in our lives. We've got to get rid of it. If we're going to surrender to God and, and get rid of the, the, the warring that's inside of us that comes from the passion and desires inside of us that are, that are sinful desires, then we have to get rid of the sin that's causing those passions and desires within us. And not just an exterior wash of cleaning the outside of the cup, but it's an entire cleansing of washing our hands and purifying our hearts. The four things that James says we have to do is we have to humble ourselves. We will do anything and everything we can to avoid heavy and intense situations. We like things to be lighthearted and funny and uplifting. We want to laugh when we come to church. Book of James sermon series is not always about laughing. God is a God that gives joy, but joy is often the result of our understanding that we deserve punishment and death, but God has taken those things and given us more grace. That's where our joy comes from. The Puritans, they have a little different style of worship. We'll just say they aren't very charismatic in assembly of God. But they were serious about their relationship with God, and, and there's a lot we can learn from them. The Puritans used to pray that their sin would cause them to cry tears. For a very non-emotional people, this was big. The Puritans would pray that their sin would cause them to cry tears because they wanted to feel the deep sorrow that it caused the Lord. When was the last time that you humbled yourself to the point that you allowed your sin to cause you to cry tears? That you humbled yourself before God to that, that kind of place? We have to humble ourselves if we're going to submit ourselves to God and experience surrender. The fifth thing that James says we have to do is we have to receive God's grace, but we also have to extend it to others. God gives us grace, but he wants us to extend that same grace to other people around us. Don't become an expert in the weaknesses of others, but look for more of God's grace in your own life. Mm -hmm. What if as a community of faith, we became observant about the growth in each other's lives rather than observant of the shortcomings of each other? What if we began to speak life to those areas that we see God moving rather than acting like we're God and putting ourselves in a place of judgment of other people? God has shown grace and mercy to us, and we should show that to other people as well. The last two or three verses of this passage that we're reading today is all about judging others and putting ourselves in a place of judgment. You say, well, how does that really even fit in this passage? It fits perfectly because we have these passions that are warring inside of us, and we're in need of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And as soon as we receive that, we turn around and put ourselves in a place of judgment when there's other people around us that are in the same place that we are, and they need us to extend the grace of God to them in the same way that we need it ourselves. There is no sin in your life. There's no sin in the life of people that are around you. There's no sin in your neighbor's life that's more powerful than the cross of Christ. How does God respond to our sin? When the volume of our sin is turned up, God turns up the volume of grace even more. He does it because he's not willing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would have eternal life. Mm -hmm. We've got to put ourselves in a place that when we receive the grace and the mercy of God, that when the sin is turned up in the lives of people around us, that we turn up God's grace even louder. There's people that are in need of experiencing the grace of God and the mercy of God. Is God going to judge people for their sin? One day he is and he alone will, but we're thankful that we have an opportunity 
that someone shared with us, that someone told us that we had a chance to repent, that we had a chance to make things right, that we had a chance and not a chance today to deal with the war that's going on inside of us. And if we're not careful, that war will, will continue to, to, to rage until it consumes us, until it consumes the relationships around us, until it brings us into direct hostility with God causing us to be an enemy of God, but God chooses to respond to this by giving us more grace. Where are you today? Is it World War Me for you? Are there passions and desires that are battling within you that cause fights and quarrels not only within you, but with others around you? And ultimately are going to lead towards a hostility between you and God? Are you tired of the fights and the conflicts? Are you tired of the battles that are escalating and the hostility between you and God magnifying? Are you ready for the war to come to an end? And today you have an opportunity to surrender your life to God. Today you have an opportunity you can begin to resist the plan of the enemy in your life and he will flee. You can begin to draw near to God and God will draw near to you. You can wash not only your hands, but also purify your hearts. You can humble yourselves before the Lord. You can be a recipient of God's grace and also someone who extends that grace to other people that are desperately in need. The choice is ours to make. God's never going to force us to make a decision that we don't want to make. James is in such a frustrated state with believers that are allowing their lives to look this way. He says, come on, you adulterous people, don't you see? Don't you see that God's made a promise towards you and, and you kind of made that promise toward him, but you've gone back. You're, you're looking for another way and God's still offering you grace. He's still giving you a second chance. He's still not willing that you would perish, but wanting you to return to him. Talked about the three enemies that we have. The devil, the roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. The world but our, and ourselves. And, and the enemy, the devil, has already been defeated. God's already taken care of that. There's still some battles that we're going to fight. But the war is already won in that situation. The battle with the world is just a choice for us to make. We have to choose. Are we going to live our lives in worldliness? Or are we going to live our lives in godliness? That's a choice that we have to make. But the biggest battle we'll face is the one within ourselves. Our own worst enemy. Deciding what's going to rule and reign in our lives. goes back to what we learned last week. We can allow the wisdom of God to lead our lives. Or we can allow the wisdom of the world to lead our lives. We can allow the passions and desires that are not of God to create war within us, around us, between us and God. Or we can surrender and submit ourselves to God in humility. I want to pray for you today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I wonder if there's anyone here today that would just say, you know what, in my life, there's been a raging war that's going on inside of me and it's it's began to affect not only me, but it's began to affect the people that are around me. And I know that it's, it's bringing separation between me and God today. But today I want to deal with, with those 
war that's raging inside of me with those battles and fights and quarrels that are there and I want to surrender my life to God and allow Him alone to rule in my life. I want to allow His wisdom to be the wisdom that operates my life. I want to allow godliness, not worldliness in my life. Is there anyone that that's you today? You just raise a hand and say, you know what? There's battles raging inside me, but today I want to surrender to God. Anybody else? Awesome. Hands up from front to back all across this place. Today I want to lead you at a simple prayer. I want to invite everyone here to pray along with me, whether you raise your hand just now or not. We're going to just simply surrender our lives to the Lord. We're going to allow Him to be the Lord of our life. We're going to do exactly what we read about just a few minutes ago in the book of James and surrendering and submitting to God. And in doing so, we're resisting the enemy. We're drawing near to God. We're washing not only our hands, but purifying our hearts. We're humbling ourselves. This is the first step of that relationship with God. And God doesn't want a shallow relationship with you. He wants a deep one. And so it's not going to happen in 30 seconds. It's not going to happen in one Sunday morning. It's the beginning of a lifelong relationship that's going to continue to grow in your life. You pray with me today, everybody here. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you that when my life is a mess, when war is raging within me, you give me more grace. Today I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I submit and surrender my life to you. I believe when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sin. And today I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. challenge you and encourage you whether you prayed that prayer raised your hand today or whether you've been in a relationship with God and you just find yourself sometimes veering off the course a little bit that surrender is not a one time event it's a daily event Jesus told his followers that they would pick up their cross daily and follow him so what God begins in your life today doesn't end here today Continue to draw near to God. Continue to allow him to draw near to you. Continue to surround yourself and position yourself in atmospheres where you will grow. If you did pray the prayer for the first time, you're wanting some help in your next steps. We've got some booklets up here. These are just some help. This, this one's 30 discipleship exercises. It'll help you create some habits in your life to draw near to God. There's a gospel of John that's up here that you're welcome to take and begin to read. If you don't have a Bible, that's a great place to start. You have to make those daily decisions. If you walk out of here today and nothing changes, then you're just like James says, you're a hearer of God's word, not a doer. And that's not going to put faith into action. And it's not going to result in a change in your life. It's just going to cause you to look back and say, I tried that and it didn't work, but you really never tried it. You just spoke it. You never lived it. Something has to change inside. So I challenge you and encourage you to begin to draw near to God, to continually surrender your life. Praying a prayer, making 
Christ the Lord of your life doesn't mean that you're never going to fall, you're never going to fail, you're going to walk in perfection all the days of your life. No, you're going to continually need the, the God that gives more grace. But there's going to be progress and growth in your life. There's going to begin to be fruit in your life from the choices and decisions that you're making. The fruit that comes out of your life is going to be different fruit than what's been coming out of your life because the choices and decisions that you're making are changed. The wisdom that you're operating in is the wisdom from God and not the wisdom from the world.